Uh, good morning, everyone. So good to be uh, opening God's Word with you again this morning, to be gathering um, as God's people, to look at His Word, um, and to look at this theme of um, our values. If you've been with us over the last uh, five or six weeks or so, um, you'll know that we've been in a series um, called Follow Me. We've been looking at the theme of discipleship, of what it means to follow Jesus, the nature of discipleship. Uh, Dave wrapped up that uh, series for us last week. And I actually think it really sets us up really well um, for what we're moving into over these next uh, few weeks. Um, as Tom said, we're in a series on values of what it means to be central, what is, um, what is the core of what it means to follow Jesus and to seek him as we see the transformation of Belfast. Um, so if you have a Bible with you, we're going to jump in uh, to our teaching text this morning. Uh, we're looking at Romans chapter 12, uh, starting in verses 1 and 2. If you don't have a Bible, the word should um, appear behind me. So this is what it says. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. And we thank God for his word today. Um, a few weeks ago, uh, Hannah and I celebrated our uh, first wedding anniversary. Um, it, yes, I mean, still hopefully a long, long way to go, but I mean, it's a good first, first milestone. Um, but to be t- completely honest, it was probably the least celebratory anniversary that there has ever been, right? Just as Jamie has come down with long cold, so too did Hannah, right? So, I mean, I had a wonderful day by myself. I... Uh, walked in the beach, we head up to the coast, I walked in the beach, I watched football, I mean, as far as it went for me, I was happy enough, but as far as anniversaries go, it probably wasn't setting the standard pretty high, right? Um, but as, as I kind of uh, reflected on our first year of marriage and kind of everything that this year had and kind of a, a year that was marked by COVID and all that sort of stuff, um, I kind of realized two, two, well, I realized a lot, but two, two things that I realized is one that I have inherited my mum's like hyper OCD cleaning about our house, right? I never thought I would be that guy. So like our, when I was living at home, my room was a disaster, right? But as soon as I had my own space, like I'm like everything. If it's not a right angle, it's a wrong angle, right? It's like that sort of thing. So I was like, so I, I didn't, no idea where that came from. Well, my mum, but I just did not see that coming. But the other thing that I kind of realized as we settled into life together is that there's nothing that we kind of loved more was, is, is coming home after like a long kind of hard week, lighting the fire and watching like WIC TV or like really lighthearted television. Hannah introduced me to Parks and Rec. Um, don't know if any watch it. Like all I want to be is Ron Swanson when I'm older, right? It's like ultimate goals. But in a year that... Um, was, has been pretty full on for so many reasons. Um, that had kind of become a little bit of like a guilty pleasure for us. We kind of just found a little bit of solace in that. And as I realized that it kind of became a bit of a guilty pleasure for us, I kind of started to think about the other things that are guilty pleasures for myself. And one of those things that has developed in the last, well, number of months really, is watching Dragon's Den, right? I have no idea where this came from other than being bombarded on Facebook with videos of Dragon's Den, but like this totally like captivated me a little bit and like Hannah despises it because I'm sitting like watching like 15 minute videos on Dragon's Den. 
But something about it just like captivated me a little bit. Kind of watching how these businessmen and women kind of pitch their ideas, how these ideas are received by these dragons, these investors, and kind of how well or how well they don't know or they do know their financial numbers. I just find it so interesting. But as I've indulged over, you know, the last number of months in Dragon's Den, um, one of the things that I've noticed is that these, you know, investors, these potential investors, absolutely hate it when someone comes to them with an, of the valuation on their business that is just like way off. So someone will come in and, and they'll value their business at like two and a half million pounds, and they've never actually made anything or they've never made any money. They, they have nothing to prove, but they're just essentially suggesting that this is what they think it's worth and they get absolutely berated for it, right? They get totally shot down and it's a total disaster for them. But as I've watched, they've become so aware that we all have a value system, don't we? How we value stuff that's in front of us, how we value stuff that we do. And whether it's in the sense of kind of this in Dragon's Den where it's monetary value, um, or it's how this person values their business, or it's um, how, they, how we value the job that we do, or we value kind of the way that we parent, or the techniques that we use um, when it comes to decisions that we make, or how we spend our money, all of this stuff, we all have a values system, right? And in a world that talks endlessly about identity, identity in your work, identity in your relationships, uh, in your possessions, in, in your image, in stuff, whatever it is, the reality is that it's not that stuff that we find our identity. It's not that stuff that defines us. It's our values. It's the values that define us because our values inform who we are. Whether values that we consciously choose or values that we kind of have subconsciously chosen to live by, they are the things that dictate the identity that follows. Identity will always supersede our values. And as we kick off this series today, um, over the next number of weeks, um, and we've realized there's been quite a few new people join, and we thought this is a great opportunity to kind of uh, remind people, to tell people again, what are our values here at Central? And we have three main values. Um, these are the values that Central was planted under, and these are the values um, that our parent church, Carmoney, established way back in 2008 when they um, launched what was a 2020 vision at the time. Um, and they remain our values here today. Um, and I strongly believe uh, that these core values orient us around what it means to be people who follow in the way of Jesus. I believe that um, they give foundation and direction in helping us be the kind of people that if we live them out, we will see the transformation of Belfast for the kingdom of God in our time, in their worship, community, and witness. And today we're looking at the first of those, which is worship. And I, I gather that when you hear that word, your mind probably goes to one place. It probably goes to, to this, what we've just done. We, we've gathered to sing and lift up uh, the name of Jesus in song, and, and we think about arrangements and, and creativity and scripture prayer, preaching, and so on, and so on. And you're not wrong, right? It's a good place to start. When we talk about worship, this is a good place to start. And if I'm to make sort of generalizations this morning, probably around two main understandings of worship, um, from someone who comes from a perspective of faith with regards to worship and somebody who doesn't, so someone who doesn't associate with faith, they will think of worship as like a religious thing that you do 
But if you do associate yourself with, with faith, worship is likely to be this, the corporate gathered liturgical song singing type of worship. But it's important to acknowledge that when we talk about worship being a core value of ours here at Central, that that expression is not the full expression of what it means when we talk about worship. Because worship in its most simplistic form is the ascription or the ascribing of ultimate value of, or worth to something. Ascribing ultimate value or worth to something. The word itself comes from the old English word worth-ship. It's when we ascribe ultimate value or worth to something. And when we understand that worship is the ascription of ultimate value to something, that very quickly changes how we understand worship. Because all of a sudden, worship is not just, just for the religious types, nor is it confined to the noise that we make with our voices here on a Sunday. The reality is we are all worshiping something. Because whether we like it or not, we all ascribe ultimate value and worth to something. Worship is way deeper, a way more substantial thing and as we dig into this topic this morning, it kind of got me thinking um, about kind of what the nature of worship is. And when I when I kind of prepared to, for today and, and tried to boil it down to what it is, worship is all about orientation. But more specifically, it's about redirection. It's about redirection. A number of years ago. Uh, Hannah and I went to a gig down in Dublin, and uh, we went to see one of our favorite bands at the time. Um, and Hannah decided that she wanted to drive to Dublin for this show. So, I mean, you probably guessed where this is going already. Um, but we, she decided she wanted to drive, so uh, we said that we would head down to Dublin, hung out with our friends during the day, went to the show. It was a great show, um, and then kind of made our trek back up to Belfast. Afterwards, it was about midnight or so by the time we were leaving, um, and we kind of, yeah, we'd kind of resolved it was going to be a bit of a late one. And I'm one of these people who like. If I'm tired enough, we'll fall asleep anywhere, right? And we kind of we set off on our journey, and uh, not too long had passed before I kind of fell asleep. And you know that thing where you like you're woken up by like your head dropping, where you're like sleeping and you do that like, and it, like wakes you. So I like woke up after like I don't know 45 minutes, an hour after falling asleep, and I kind of just like was looking at the window and I was starting to see signs to Dublin. And I'm thinking. We're on our way back from Dublin. Why am I seeing signs to Dublin? So basically what had happened in the kind of the interim of me falling asleep is that Hannah had kind of missed the turn somewhere and we were on our way back to Dublin. I also should say that Hannah said that she wouldn't use Google Maps because it was an easy drive, right? So, I mean, never trust her when you're getting into a car with her. It's also a miracle we got home because her car, like parts, were literally held together with sellotape. Like, this is no, not a word of, of a lie. Like, there was rules of cell tape in her glove compartment for, the, for the, if there was an emergency. So, like, it was a miracle we even got there. But I highlight that story because we are living in a world where we're being pulled in so many directions. And it doesn't take much for us to end up going the wrong way. It doesn't take much for us to be redirected. And when it comes to worship, it's exactly the same, isn't it? And the thing with worship is that it's paradoxical, right? It's this weird world of two things living in uh, harmony but in tension with 
one another. Because worship is not a choice, but at the same time, it is an option. It's not a choice, but it is an option. We all worship something. We all ascribe ultimate value and worth to something. We have no choice in that, but within that, we have an option of what we will worship. There are so many options. It's kind of like that issue that we all have when we get to the end of a Netflix show and we're like that anxiety that falls over you that you're thinking, flip, what am I going to start watching now? And you begin that like endless, seemingly endless search of like what's next. So you watch all the trailers and you read all of the blurbs. It's what actually uh, a psychologist in America called analysis paralysis. It's this thing where you just like completely implode trying to find what you're going to watch and then you just end up watching what you've already watched before. So like for us in our house, that's friends. So we're like, we just revert back to what we're comfortable with, what we know. And Swartz, the guy who coined this phrase, analysis paralysis, says that adding options to people's lives can't help but increase the expectations people have about how good those, exp- or how, how good those options will be. And what that's going to produce is less satisfaction with the results, even when they're good results. Analysis paralysis we get so overwhelmed so tangled up in options and the same can be said of our worship we have so many options with what to worship so when we ascribe ultimate worth and and value to our work we worship it when we ascribe ultimate value to money and we go after money that becomes our god or the same can be said with relationships with security sex power politics possessions, image, followers, influence. I could go on and on and on. We are all worshiping something, but so often our worship is misdirected for the thing that it was created for. Our worship is misdirected from the thing that it was created for. And misdirected worship only ever leads to idolatry, doesn't it? And one of the biggest challenges to the follower of Jesus in the 21st century is idolatry. But this is not a new thing. This is not a 21st century thing. This is something that has happened from the start. Why? Because idolatry is an ailment of the heart. It's an ailment of the heart. We see this all the way through Scripture. Right at the beginning when we see in Genesis 3 how the enemy um, said to Adam and Eve that if they, you know, in, in their, their pursuit of knowledge, um, that they could be like God. And you flick over a few pages and you, you read of uh, the, Israel, the Israelites at the bottom of Mount Sinai creating a golden calf that they would then worship. And time and time and time again, idolatry has been the result of misdirected hearts. And it's found its way here to the present day. The theologian William Stringfellow says this, idolatry is pervasive in every time and culture, no less now than yesterday, no less in Washington than in Gomorrah. And the challenge is that half the time, we're not even aware, are we? We don't even realize that we are becoming enslaved to the things that have become idols, to the things that we have chosen, maybe you know, consciously or subconsciously to worship. Because so much of our misdirected worship isn't towards bad stuff, right? It's not towards stuff that is bad for us. Bruce Ellis Benson, a former uh, professor in in philosophy, sums up 
this better than I can when he says, not only are we capable of creating idols and worshiping them, we are likewise capable of being almost or completely blind to their existence. Because work and relationships and security and all this stuff aren't bad things. They just aren't the things that we were originally created to worship. John Tyson rewords this slightly differently when he calls these things disordered loves. Disordered loves and disordered loves need redirection. And the challenge that this posed to me as I prepare for today, as I, I kind of put my thoughts together and when we were thinking about worship, was that we need to get back to our first love. We need to get back to our first love. And that's why worship is such a high value for us here at Central, because we believe that it's through worship, through the gathering of God's people, that we get brought back to there. We get brought back to our first love, back to the feet of Jesus, to the one who first loved us. And there are two main ways that we find our way back there. There's two main ways I think we find our way back to our first love, two avenues of worship that redirect us back to Jesus. And the first one is this, is Sunday, right? The corporate gathering of God's people. When it comes to how we value worship here at Central, like Sunday is a big deal. We put a lot of emphasis on the gathering of God's people. We believe that this, the gathered expression, is formative for our discipleship. As a Hebrew writer acknowledges in Hebrews 10, as he writes, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. The gathered expression of church is a core practice of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And I think the last year has probably proven that. For so many of us, I don't know about you, but the online church thing just didn't quite cut it. I love how Mark Sayers concludes uh, online worship and his, his thoughts on online worship as oxymoronic. Like when I speak to most people about their experience of online church in the last year, the resounding response is that the novelty kind of wore off pretty quick and people just couldn't wait to be back in the room. And that's not to diminish, to diminish the online thing we still understand that we're not out of the woods yet when we you know think about covid and all that sort of stuff and there is a level of necessity for it however the church wasn't designed to only be scattered that's why this is a valuable part of what it means to be the church as a staff team here uh, at the beginning of of lockdown last year, we uh, kind of met to, to discuss how we were going to respond to, you know, this pandemic that we'd kind of just been launched into. We'd pretty much been locked down overnight, and we kind of got together very quickly because Sunday was like only a few days away, and we were thinking, what the heck are we supposed to do um, with kind of what we have? We didn't have the, the infrastructure for kind of online stuff, really, so it was kind of like a last-minute scramble, and we kind of talked about what we would do and how we would do it. Um, and so we decided that we would, you know, put out resourceful, helpful resources and online content that would, you know, reflect who we are here at Central. But the caveat to that 
was that we made the decision that whatever we put out there into the ether online for the whole world to see is that it could never be better than what it means to be in the room. So we would, put, we would try and we would give people kind of good experiences and good content and good kind of challenges and encouragement and all that stuff, but it, that it would never take the place of what it means to be here in the room. Because we really believe that the gathered church community is imperative for the advancement of God's kingdom here in Belfast. And also for our discipleship, right? Our discipleship needs other disciples. And the corporate worship gathering is so important because as part of its design, it is, it is designed to be an encouragement to each other. That's what the Hebrew writer says when he says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. You being here today are an encouragement to the people around you, and you might not even be aware of it, but you are. Why? Because every person here is a testament to the fact that God is doing something in the lives of those around you, that he has them here for a reason, that he's not done with them yet, and he's not done with you yet either. That's why we often say that we should never discount the power of just turning up, of just getting yourself through the door, getting yourself into the room, John Wesley often reminded the early Methodist people as he planted what was the Methodist church of the words of a close friend when he said that the Bible knows no solitary religion. You can't be a faith community alone. It just doesn't work like that. That's why we put such an emphasis on community and discipleship here at Central and we'll begin to unpack those in the next couple of weeks as we look at what it means to be a community. And we'll dig into that more next week. But there is a deep unity as the scattered, gathered people of God come together under one vision, under one purpose. The purpose for which they were created, to worship our creator together. And personally for me, as, as I help in, in serving and, and leading our, our teams here at, at Central, our worship teams with Jimmy, um, we kind of we've talked often at length about the power of what it is that when you're leading worship and you kind of just hear the collective voices in the room. Like we've we've discovered as we've inherited this building that this building was made for voices, and it is the most incredible thing when you hear that when you hear that from the front coming back at you. It is the most overwhelming thing. And when we reopened church um, in uh, Easter time this year after that, that circuit breaker that never ended. Uh, uh, we, we opened our, our, our services on Good Friday. Um, and, and I remember this so clearly. I was, um, we, before that, we had decided as a leadership, the leadership team had decided that we weren't going to have congregational singing because of what the advice was from the, the PHA at the time. And when we came back then at Easter, we decided, okay, we're going to bring it back in. We're going to slowly introduce it again. And uh, I remember this so clearly because I was leading worship at that Good Friday service. And we were maybe about halfway through the first set of worship. And uh, I, I pulled my ears out and the noise that came back at me. Like, and I don't know if it was just because I hadn't heard it in so long or for so long it was just like leading worship to a camera. I don't know what it was, but it was th- that moment when I heard the voices again. It just kind of... Stirred something deep in my soul again. It was one of the most humbling things 
that I have experienced in worship in a very, very long time because the collective unified voice of the people of God in the presence of God is such a powerful thing. And I truly believe that it's in that space that we begin to see God work his wonders, right? That's when we begin to see people come alive again, when we see people hailed. It's when we see ourselves being recentered, when we forget ourselves again, and when we fix our eyes on him again. It's the space where we redirect our love, our adoration, and our affection on the one who gave us the breath to do it in the first place. And it's also the space in which the proclaimed truth of Jesus is heard, where we see the impact of intercessory prayer and when the Holy Spirit begins to mine deep in our hearts. That's why we cannot neglect the meeting together, as Hebrews 10 urges, because it redirects us back to him. It redirects us back to our first love. So gathered corporate worship is so important to us here as we redirect ourselves back to our first love. And that's why it's such a high value for us here at Central. But the other side of that, um, the other side of redirecting ourselves back to our first love happens when we leave this place, when we leave the public gathering corporate expression of the church. And that's when we leave and we go into our everyday and this is equally important as, as we are the gathered expression of the church. Eugene Peterson translates the verses that we read at the very beginning like this. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit in into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings out the best of you. He develops well-formed maturity in you. And I believe that this is where the rubber hits the road when it comes to faith, right? Because it's no longer just about what happens here on a Sunday, but in every day, in the ordinary and extraordinary parts of our everyday lives. I was, uh, I was raised in church. Uh, I come from a family who can all follow Jesus. And every Sunday we went to church. And when I say we went to everything, I literally mean we went to everything, like like, if it was legal, I probably would have been at GB, just as much as I would have been at BB, right? We went to everything. There's like literally everything. And, I mean, Sunday was the least restful day of the week by, by a country mile, right? And by the time I was a teenager, um, out of the, like, I don't know, 14, 15 hours of the waking day that I had, I was in church. I counted during the week. I think I was in church for about 11 of those 15 hours, Right? And uh, one of those things, in one of those hours that I was in church, I was in Sunday school, right? So many people that I kind of grew up with who went to different churches all went to Sunday school during church. 
but we didn't, right? We were hardcore. We had the whole service, and then we had uh, Sunday school after church, right? So we had it at 3 p.m. on a Sunday afternoon. Um, and I think it was about 8 or 9, we started to learn the Westminster Shorter Catechism, right? I mean, eventually you would graduate to the Longer Catechism, so it was like the most rock and roll lifestyle of an 8, eight, year, eight or 9-year-old there ever was, right? Did anybody else do that? Did anybody else learn the catechism, or are we just like the most Presbyterian people in the land? Jillian learned it? Sweet. Uh, I'm glad to know I wasn't the only one. But anyway, we, uh, we learned the catechism, and I hated it, right? It was like an extra day of homework on like the days that you had off in the week. So there was like questions and answers, and you would learn like two or three each week, and you go home, and then you come back the next week, and you have to be able to recite them, right? And I, like, it just wasn't my thing. Like, I just didn't enjoy it. And at the end of the year, there was a quiz, a quiz, right? That's how they branded it. It was, it was just like a test of how holy you were or you weren't. Um, but to this day, I can probably recite none of the answers to any of them questions apart from one, and it was the first question in the longer catechism. And the question is this, what is the chief end of man? And the answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that has kind of stuck with me, um, probably just muscle memory more than like anything at the beginning. But I've never forgotten that. I've never forgotten the answer to that question. So maybe it wasn't totally futile as to where I am here today. But I say that because I believe that that truth has probably somehow shaped me along the way as I've tried to walk in step with the Lord throughout my life, as I followed him, as I've made mistake after mistake after mistake and found kind of life in his grace again. This truth has always reminded me that my primary occupation as a follower of him is to glorify his name and to, to enjoy him forever, to worship him and that impacts how you live, right? That should impact how you live. But in order to glorify him, we need an awareness of why we are to glorify him. And in short, it's because it's our response to what he has already done for us. It's our response to him. Richard Foster writes, the worship is the human response to the divine initiative. And the divine initiative is the redemptive purposes of God breaking into a world that so badly needs the things of him and the things of his reign. Because we are broken people in a broken world seeking meaning and purpose and fulfillment that can only ever be found in him. As the writer of Romans says at the beginning of chapter 12, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice in view of God's mercy. We are living, breathing recipients of a grace that we didn't deserve and a mercy that gave us that grace anyway. As Adam and Eve sought to put themselves on par with God for the sake of knowledge, they no longer lived in perfect unity with the Father and sin entered the world, but later in the story, so too did Jesus. And he would become the sacrifice that we could never be, the offering. Uh, he would offer us the opportunity to live life and life to the full. 
And in light of the same mercy that God showed us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he offers us that same mercy every single day. As Jeremiah writes in Lamentations 3, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Because his faithfulness and mercy towards us is new daily, then so too should our response to, of, of worship be towards him daily. That's why our chief end, our primary occupation as a follower of Jesus is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's our response to him who is faithful every single day. And we see that in the life of Jesus. When he came to earth, he reflected this holistic, all-of-life practice of worship. He came to do God's will on earth, and what he did was he modeled for his disciples what a life lived in worship and communion with the Father looked like. Whether that be in how he responded to uh, those around him who would try and catch him out with law, with legalism, or to how he would retreat to be with the Father in the quiet place. Always with one goal in mind, to bring glory and honor and worship to his Father. And that's what worship is to be to us as well. It's a daily response to live out of the mercy that he has shown us. Because the arena of faith is not so much in here as it is in the everyday. It's in the everyday and worship should pervade every aspect of our lives, not just in the Sunday gathering, but in the everyday going. As we go into our everyday. But the thing is, it doesn't have to look a certain way. I feel like so often when it comes to like, you know, practices, practices and spiritual disciplines, we get so caught up in what it should look like when the reality is they're only just ever means to an end. But we get so caught up in the means, so we get caught up in worship and we think, oh, Philip, I have to learn to sing or I have to learn to do this or that. But it doesn't have to look a certain way. But it involves choosing to go after the things of God, even when you don't feel like it. Because the reality is God doesn't need our worship. We do. God doesn't need our worship. We need it. We need it because it redirects us back to him. I had quite a, a moving experience of this uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, we had just come out of church, um, and it was like one of those mornings, I think it was the beginning of the following series, and, and I felt like the encouragement of the Lord kind of very close. Um, but as we left the, the service, I kind of just felt this like wave of spiritual like, attack come over me, and I, I was so like down, I was so discouraged. We drove to the coast to see family, and I literally just sat in silence the whole way there. Like, I just, just so, like, I don't know, it was just so captivating, whatever the kind of the warfare that was kind of going on deep in my heart. And this kind of sat with me for a day or two. Um, and uh, it was, I think it was the next day, uh, we were, Hannah and I were kind of doing some weekly Sabbath stuff and, and we were taking this time to pray and, and to be honest and, and take time away from phones and, and all that sort of stuff. And we began to talk about this and I kind of started to be honest with kind of what had been going on and what was going on in in my heart at the time. And, and 
like most from a good part of the night after kind of talking about it, we just sat in silence and we just sat in silence in our in our living room and the silence was broken by Hannah reading Psalm 139 over me. And it was like the Spirit of God just came into the room. It was like the Spirit sat down beside me. And it wasn't because we were trying to be, you know, super holy, because most of the week we're not. (laughs) But as we humbled ourselves before the Lord, and we chose to give ourselves the practices that would kind of mine faith and cultivate faith within us, he met us, and he met me where I was at. Because God doesn't need our worship. We need it. It's worship that redirects us back to him. It recenters us in him as we give him the glory and the honor that he rightly deserves. And in that simple act of worship, my head and my heart were redirected, redirected off of myself and onto him again. And it was honestly one of the most relieving things, right? Just to take my eyes off of me for a minute and to fix them on him again. And as we choose to do that, as we, we make the decision to give ourselves to him and worship every day, as we go about our mundane daily lives, he will make his purposes known to us and through us. And you know, as I prepared for today, as I spent time thinking about like our values and thinking about all three of them, it kind of got me realizing, and I realized that it's worship you know, out of our three values, worship, community, and witness, it's worship that informs the other two. It's worship that informs our community because we gather here as a community to worship. And it's worship that informs our, our witness as we go into the world. And as we go into our everyday, you know, the, the Spirit just moves through us as we choose to say yes to what He's doing. And our daily lives that can so often just be predictable end up just being a vessel for the Lord to do what he wants to do. The Scottish theologian Sinclair Ferguson tells a story of how the man who led him to faith was himself led to Jesus through, and I quote, the work ethic of a Christian woman who worked for him as a typist. Observing the work ethic of a Christian woman who worked for him as a typist. Don't disqualify yourself from what God can do through your seemingly boring, ordinary, everyday life. Don't think for one second that your worship to the Father is just about you and Him because it goes way beyond that. It goes way beyond the confines of yourself. It's your worship, it's your choice uh, to offer yourself as a living sacrifice as you teach kids, as you wait tables, as you parent, as you rest, as you write assignments, as you play sport, as you think, as you speak. Let your life be your worship. And it's as you do that that God will make his redemptive purposes known to the world around us by taking your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life and placing it 
before God as an offering. Let your life be your worship. Just as, as we draw to a close, and I invite the guys um, up to lead us in the rest of our service. Worship is about redirection. The redirection of our hearts away from the idols and of our lives onto the Lord, onto our first love, the one who loved us first. He went all the way to the cross for us, whose grace and mercy extends to us each and every day. Because when we do that, when we redirect our worship to the one who's fully deserving of it, we find ourselves again. And that redirection has two expressions. It is this, the corporate expression of the church gathered as the collective community under one heart and one purpose to pursue the Lord and pursue the life of faith together. It's about building each other up, seeking the Lord and allowing him to move within us so that when we leave this gathering, when we leave this place, we go in his name and worship is also in the everyday, about realizing that everything that we do, everything that we are, every place we go, every person we meet is an opportunity for worship, about remembering to choose him above all of the rivals that this world offers us. I love what James K.A. Smith says about worship. He says, Christian worship, we should recognize, is essentially a counterformation to those rival liturgies we are often immersed in, the cultural practices that covertly capture our loves and longings, miscalibrating them, orienting us to rival versions of the good life. May we be a people who live in light of that counter formation, who give ourselves to the Lord in worship every single day. Because when we do that, when we live out, um, when we live out of our, our true and proper calling to be worshippers of the Lord, that leads to him doing what only he can do. That leads to him seeing, uh, to us seeing the transformation of um, our workplaces, of our homes, of our city. It's the choice to say, yes, I'll be redirected again from the rival liturgies and the rival um, practices and everything that the world throws at us. Because when we do that, we'll be living out of one true purpose, to glorify God and enjoy him forever.